I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It was an insane thing to do, but I did it and got myself into a lot of trouble for it. And now I get to do the same thing. I hack into systems all day long, but I don't get into trouble for it. I get paid for it. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kebler. I'm very excited to have Kevin Mitnick here with us today. Kevin is a world famous hacker turned security expert. Is that a good way of introducing you or, or not really? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm well known for hacking because I was made the example by the United States government in the 90s. And today I get to do the same thing. I'm hacking into systems all the time. But the difference is I have my client's authorization. So I do what, you know, pen, penetration testing. Right. We also have our security reporter, Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. Hi, everyone. Nicholas DeLeon. Hey, everyone. And Charu Sinha. You have a new book out called The Art of Invisibility. The world's most famous hacker teaches you how to be safe in the age of big brother and big data. It's sort of like a how to keep yourself safe these days, which seems impossible, but there are things you can do, obviously. Yeah, you can make it really hard for somebody to intercept your comms, but it takes a, a lot of work. But what inspired me to write the book, and it's not for somebody like Lorenzo who's a security guy that knows this stuff. It's mostly written for the everyday person out on the street that has no idea about what the threats are out there and what they could do to protect themselves. And the inspiration behind it all was Edward Snowden's revelations in 2013, where he revealed how the U.S. government was really breaking the law and monitoring our comms. And I go, well, wait a second. Not only do we have to worry about the government, but we have to worry about my boss at work, my teacher at school, my parents, and this sort of thing. What are the tools that I could use to protect my privacy when I need to protect it? Right. I feel like we also voluntarily give our data to a lot of companies. Well, it's like I use Gmail, right? So I don't pay for it. Well, I pay for my corporate one, right? But for my personal one, I don't pay for it. So I'm the product. Basically, I'm allowing them to basically violate my privacy in exchange for using their services. It feels like every couple months we come into the office and Lorenzo and our security reporter in Europe, Joseph Cox, tells us about a new hack and what we should sort of do about it. And today was one of those days we came in and there was the Cloudflare data leak oh, yeah. with Cloudbleed. So everyone's like, oh, what should we do? Uh, which password should we change? And this one seems like it's quite large, but when something like this happens, what do you tell people? Well, it depends if I had any Cloudflare, you know, if I have Cloudflare customers, that's who's really been affected, right? And, you know, they're clients, obviously, the people that use the, the systems. And uh, I would just make it very public. And if they used any of the services to rotate their keys, whether it's API keys, SSH keys, or credentials, because Tavis Ormandy, who I greatly respect as a vulnerability researcher, exposed this bug. And it's, it's really serious. It's almost as serious as Heartbleed, which was a different bug in uh, OpenSSL. Right. And Heartbleed is still, yeah, Heartbleed's still sort of 
out there because there's so many Internet of Things devices that haven't been updated or won't ever get updated, right? Yeah, pretty much. I guess we could use Shodan and maybe try to find these devices, obviously. But at least with the ones that are interesting, they've been patched. Like I had a client, I was testing an airline at the time that Heartbleed was made public, and they were running Juniper VPNs. And I actually used Heartbleed to extract the credentials out of their public SSL VPN. So it was kind of cool. I was like, oh, that's awesome. That still works. Yeah. But immediately I told them to patch because, you know, that's like a critical Internet-facing vulnerability, so they want to fix it. But you have to wonder, you know, Cloudbleed, Heartbleed, there's tons of other bugs out there that are being exploited that are kept secret and are, that have yet to be found. So I guess like we come into the office or you sign on to your email in the morning and you see something like this has happened. As a normal person not involved in the security world, what should we do? Like, should we well, change our passwords? Well, if you're not the security world, you like... probably don't care and you probably don't understand it, right? So right. what we need to do as security professionals is educate the people that aren't interested in security or don't have the knowledge, hey... This, you know, that's why we depend on you guys, like, you know, podcasters. Hey, inform the public, you know, what is this? How does it work? How can it hurt me? And how, what can you do to fix it? Because you find people that are just everyday people, they, oh, there's another flaw in the internet, but they don't know what it means. If they read even Tavis's blog, they wouldn't understand it. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about the old days? Like, I, I, there's a quick... What, what's your rundown at this point? Like, it's uh, you've been in this world for 30 years now. So yeah, what, since what's I was the, 16. Yeah. So I started off as a kid that loved magic, and I met this kid in high school that could do magic with the phone system. He was involved in phone freaking, but not necessarily like 2600 type of phone freaking. This is, I think, before 2600 Magazine. And he showed me all the tricks he could do, like taught me about the CNA Bureau. Wouldn't give me the number. CNA was customer name address. I don't know how much phone freaking guys are listening here and Hopefully how to get down published <laughs> numbers, you know, about loop arounds and all this sort of thing. And I thought, oh, man, this is so cool. And uh, getting access to telephone company switches and changing home phones to pay phones and this sort of thing. And I just got really hooked in this. And then when Ma Bell was essentially moving from electromechanical switching systems like crossbar and step by step. I know this is probably before your time and moved over to ESS, Electronic Switching Systems, that's when I became interested in computers so I could hack the phone company. And that's kind of how I originally started out. And on the tail end of like all this hacking activity for 30 years, I was very interested in cell phone technology. I was an amateur radio operator, and a cell phone is a radio and a, and a computer, essentially. And uh, what I did is I started uh, you know, hacking into cell phone companies to get the source code to their handsets. Uh, did I want to publish it or make money off it? No, I just wanted to see kind of how the code worked, right? I was more interested to understand the system. And at the time, I went past the point of no return. So I was a federal fugitive at the time. And basically, my hobby was still hacking. So I remember going to the library and getting like some mobile magazine. And it had the list of all the different handsets for sale. And at the end was a list of manufacturers at the end of the magazine. I just went from the top to the bottom to compromise them. So it was like a trophy hunter. <laughs> I was a trophy hunter. At the yeah. same time, I was working a full-time job in a law firm at one point in a hospital as a system admin. And the hospital was a help desk guy. So I was hacking by night, working by day. And eventually, over time, got a little bit complacent. And eventually, when I ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina... For people who aren't familiar, how did you keep yourself off the grid? Or like, how, like you had these jobs, did you just... Oh, yeah, I, I created new like, identities. Yeah. Essentially, uh, in some cases, I basically hijacked dead people's identities. So when, you know, it's kind of morbid, but it was a way to get off the grid is 
you know, find somebody that died around one or two years of age that was born in a different state than they died in. I realized there was no cross-referencing of birth and death records on a state level. You know, within a state, yes, but uh, interstate, no. So I basically did a lot of information reconnaissance. There's a story in my book, Ghost in the Wires, how I went to the Bureau of Vital Statistics in South Dakota, posed as a private investigator. They gave me access to their fish room. So I was able to research, you know, what identities. At the end of the research of a week, I had like 20 I could have used. And then I had a birth certificate. With the, you know, get the birth certificate, which back in those days, you didn't, nowadays you have to have a, a letter notarized. Back in the 90s, you could just send a letter, get the birth certificate, you're golden. Go to DMV back in those days, you just needed a social security number and they'd accept a W-2. So you go over to Staples or Office Max, get the W-2 forms, and I was working for Microsoft for five years. <laughs> oh right? So I was able to create new identities and live under those identities, and they were solid. You know, where I had a passport, I had a driver's license, I had a social security card, and I knew how the system worked. So I was able to beat the system knowing the vulnerabilities of the system at the time. How many identities did you create at some point? Do you remember more uh, or less? About four. So I had Eric Weiss. That was the first one because of my idol, Harry Houdini, obviously the magician, right? So that's why I chose that one. Then when I was doing research for the person that died, that was Brian Merrill. That's where I was up in uh, Seattle, Washington. Then when I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, I had two others. So those were my uh, alternate personalities, so to speak. And these are the identities that were my cover identities. A lot of it is in my book, Ghosts in the Wires. I could tell you stories all day about screw-ups I did and stuff like that that were pretty comical. But I'll tell you what, one really quick. Uh, I had to switch identities in North Carolina because I made a stupid mistake. I didn't want to pay deposits you know, for like utilities. So when I had the Brian Merrill identity, no, I'm sorry, when I, uh, I, I had a, uh, it was Glenn Case, I believe it was the identity. No, no, it was Stanfill. I'm sorry. You've forgotten yourself. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> myself. It was a guy named Stanfill. So what I did is I found a Stanfill, like in California or somewhere, and I basically had his power company just write me a letter of credit that, you know, hey, I'm a good standing customer. And all I needed to do was show that to the power company in Raleigh, and they're not going to charge me a deposit. Well, what they ended up doing was faxing the guy a copy and faxing me. So immediately he oh, knew no. something yeah, bad yeah. was going on. So. All of a sudden, I'm at home. My phone goes dead. My power goes off. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I call the phone company. They go, Are, you're not Thomas Stanfield. We got a call from the real Thomas Stanfield. And uh, I go, oh, shit. Right? So immediately, I had to abandon this new apartment, move out immediately, and then get a new identity. So as part of getting a new driver's license, the method I was using, I'd have to go take a drive test. So I remember I was taking cabs, and I asked this cab driver, This Indian guy I said, hey, man, do you think I could possibly use your cab to do a drive test at the DMV? I'll give you a hundred bucks. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so basically, so I'm at the DMV and the guy's coming out. And it was funny in Raleigh, North Carolina, they actually have like cops uniforms. So it's not like California where it's just plain clothes. Right. So this guy's coming out with me to give me the drive test to go in the car. And, and we go, I take him to the cab. He sits in the cab. I sit in the cab. And he's already like kind of this weirded out, right? And I, I put the thing down, you know, where you charge. Yeah. I said, I'm sorry, I have to charge you for the ride as well. <laughs> you know? but, but it was pretty funny. So I actually took my drive test in the cab. And you passed. And I, oh, yeah, I failed yeah, mine four times. Parallel parking got me. It's very bad. I'm a good driver, though. So I was really <laughs> adept at creating new identities and gaining control of systems at the IRS and the Social Security Administration and being able to stay under the radar. In fact, how I was caught wasn't tracing my fake identities. How I was caught was using a cell phone from a fixed location for a long period of time. 
because back in those days, cell phone charges were a buck a minute. So I took our U.S. robotics modem and I interfaced it to one of these old Novatel cell phones. You didn't do data over cell phones in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how old right, it is. Right. And so I used to dial into Netcom, which was an ISP and all around the United States, to make it hard to track my calls. That was the only reason I was doing this. So eventually I got complacent and we just used the cell phone from the same location all the time. And this is when I pissed off a guy named Satomo Shimomura. So myself and this guy from Israel... We used a new technique called IP spoofing where we do, it's basically we're able to predict sequence numbers. So we're able to spoof that we're an internal IP address and fool our hosts. So once I targeted Shimomura with JSE's help, compromised his machine, he found out he was being compromised because he was running TCP dump that we didn't know about. And uh, he got pissed off, of course. And him and John Markoff teamed up. They were trying to catch me. So Shimomura helped the FBI. And that's how they were able to nab me because normally if the FBI is operating on their own, they're very slow and they're not that technically astute at the time. I would have been pretty safe. But because you had this guy, Shimomura, that would kept pushing and pushing and pushing them because he was personally pissed off, that's how they were able to catch me. So they went out with radio direction finding gear when they figured out what cell site I was using. They tracked it down to the apartment. This was pre-Stingray or uh, MC Yeah, catcher. this was a um, triggerfish. Okay. Okay. So they used a triggerfish unit. They track it to this apartment complex, but they couldn't figure out which apartment I was in. It was actually, they were on the other side of this huge complex called the Players Club. So they go to the uh, leasing department. And they show my picture, right? Is, do you recognize this guy? Oh, no, I've never seen him before. I changed my appearance. I go out to work out at the gym. I come back. It's about 1.30 in the morning. And I just have this gut feeling that something is wrong. I feel like I'm going to get into trouble. I'm going to get arrested. I somehow screwed up. And I just feel really weird. And then I went to go log on to the well, you know, you know, through my contraption. And my passwords didn't work to my two accounts that I've set up. And I go, uh-oh, my gut feeling, something is wrong. Then I got really paranoid, shut the computer. And then I went out onto the balcony, you know, just because I was like, like, I feel like someone's watching me. And I went outside, looked around, right, scoped out the parking lot, walked back inside. That was when they spotted me. Mm. So the United States Marshal Service goes, that's weird. Here's the guy comes out. He looks around like... He's worried about something. He goes back in his apartment. That's how they caught me. That's crazy. All of this sounds very exhausting, like the changing of appearances. And I mean, it sounds to me it was fun. fun. Yeah, it was actually yeah. fun. It was actually, I, I put myself in the mindset, I wasn't a fugitive, but I was an undercover operative. So I psyched myself out. Even like if you said, Kevin, if I'm walking down the street, I wouldn't respond. I wouldn't even turn around. Mm-hmm. I would hear it, but I'd logically would say, oh, that's interesting in my mind's eye. But I had to train myself not even to respond to my real name. And to me, it was kind of cool and interesting. It was like a change. You know, here I could be undercover Kevin. And that's how I treated in my own mind. Because if I was thinking of myself as a fugitive, it would have been harder, right? Because you're always worried. So if I saw cops or anything, I wouldn't sweat it. I had bonafide United States issued identification. I had nothing to worry about. So then you got caught. You went to jail for five years? Five years. Yeah, don't forget there was a time when I was put in solitary. Right. Yeah, Yeah, for for one year. uh, Yeah, that's because when I went to a bail hearing... Of federal prosecutors told the judge, not only do we have to hold Mr. Mitnick without bail, we have to make sure he can't get access to a telephone because he would dial up to a NORAD modem, whistle into the phone, and launch an ICBM. I started laughing in federal court because that's ridiculous, right? That's yes. more <laughs> games, right? Yeah. And uh, but the judge, you know, obviously they always take the government side, you know, and they had to put me in the hole because that's the only place where they can prevent you from, you know, in general population you have phones, right? But in the hole you don't. 
And uh, so I had to sit in the hole, which is solitary for about a year. When you were in general population, did you ever do anything with the phones there? No, but I did when I was in the hole. I think was allowed to call five people at the time. My ex-wife, my mom, my grandmother, my attorney, and my aunt. I had five people on the list. So how it worked, whenever I had to make a phone call, they'd take me out of the... First of all, you have to put your hand through this trap door. They handcuff you. Same with the legs. And they'd walk you to this phone room, uncuff you, and there'd be three, like, charger calls. Kind of like a payphone. So the guard would sit there, who do you want to call? And then he'd dial zero plus the number and hand me the handset, which is a super long handset, and then sit on a chair and just watch me. Never take his eyes off me, right? And uh, at the time, my wife worked for General Telephone, and they'd only let me make a call during the day. So I couldn't call her at home, which was the number on the list, but I knew all phone companies take collect calls. So I was thinking, damn, I was really upset. So I just tried something one day. I'd, I'd always pace back and forth when I'm on the phone, you know, just like anxiety type of thing. And then I started like rubbing my back against the phone and scratching my back and walking back and forth. And then I just go, I'm going to try this. So I was ending a call with my mom at the time, but I kept talking as if I'm talking to her. And then I just reached behind my back and scratched my back. And I put down the switch hook and I knew I had 18 seconds before there was going to be a reorder. You know, or beep, 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 beep. You know, where it's very loud, where he would know something's up. So, you know, I'd do the same thing. And I'd say, I'd, you know, act like I'm talking. I'd be scratching my back. And I actually just dialed GTE, you know, zero plus the number behind my back. And then I timed it. So I'd be talking. And because they're gonna, the next thing that's going to happen is the operator's going to come on and say, ask who's the collect call from. So I said, you know, okay, mom, well, tell Uncle Ernie that Kevin says hi. When I'm saying Kevin, the operator's going, who's the collect call from? And so I was doing this for like three, three and a half weeks you know, calling anybody that I wanted, right? Right. And the guy is sitting where you are. Just, no, his eyes never move off me, right? So one morning, my cell opens, and it's like the associate warden, the captain of the prison, the unit manager, and they don't even cuff me up. They just take me to this attorney-client room, and they sit me down. I'm thinking that someone died in the family, right? I'm thinking they have some really bad news for me because that never happens. And they take me to this room, and the captain goes, Mitnick, how are you doing it? And I go, doing what? Well, our officer is dialing the phone for you, and he doesn't take his eyes off you, and somehow you're redialing the phone. And I go, what do you think I am, David Copperfield? <laughs> right? I'm a smartass. Right. right. So immediately they just throw me back in the cell. They were pissed. And like three days later, Pacific Bell, who is the provider over there, is coming out. They're installing a phone jack across from where my cell was. And I'm thinking to myself, are these guys so stupid that they're going to try to restrict a phone and give me access to it, right? Right. Yeah. And that's not uh, what happened. And actually, the next time I had to make a phone call, they brought a phone, they plugged it into the wall, dialed the number, and put the handset only through the trap door. So it was kind of like Hannibal Lecter in Silence oh of the God. Lambs, right? So, wow. yeah, they were so, they were so um, embarrassed, they never even told the court. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because they look stupid. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of odd stairs around the table this is yeah this crazy. is insane and i guess my question is like why because i wanted to talk to my wife no i mean why everything like why wow. that's a, just <laughs> in in general why well, just I, for shits and giggles or what was well the no i was I, well first of all to me hacking was about solving a puzzle right i was hacking before there was against the law i started in 78 they didn't make a law against it to 1984 i was already hooked into this and I enjoyed it. You know, it was my like my passion, and I just never gave it up, right? I didn't do it for money. I didn't do it to you know write malware and that sort of thing. And then when I got the past the point of no return, it's okay. I'm going to play catch me if you can, you know, type of thing. It was an insane thing to do, but 
I did it and got myself into a lot of trouble for it. And now I get to do the same thing. I hack into systems all day long, but I don't get into trouble for it. I get paid for it. Do so now get, I do it for money. Do you get the same excitement out of... Pretty much. Did, yeah? Yeah, especially in physicals. When we're doing physical pen testing, I have a letter in my pocket that says get out of jail free card. But I know with me, if I get approached by the cops on doing a physical pen test, right? I know, oh, where's your ID, sir? They're going to run your record. I'm going to show them the letter. Immediately, they're going to lock me up, you know, thinking, well, anyone can write this letter. So I'm going to sit in jail for maybe a, a eight or eight or ten hours while they deal with When's it. When's the last and I don't time you went to jail? In the 90s. Oh, sorry. So they... No, so I never get happen. caught. Oh, oh right? okay. <laughs> but I, I have incentive not to get caught. Yes. Because a normal pen tester, they're going to, you know, they're going to be a clean person. They're going to have a letter, and that's going to be good. With me, they won't believe the letter because, you know, based on my history. So I, <laughs> I'm really extra careful when I'm doing physical pen tests. But it's actually, you have the adrenaline, the rush is the same, uh, and it's exciting. Same with the, you know, exploiting web apps or breaking in, you know, uh, into internal networks. It's I. I get the same enjoyment I did when I was doing it. Uh, in fact, I mean, this is crazy. So I run a company. Companies work towards improving the bottom line, right? It's all for profit. That's all companies really care about. How can they make more money? With me, if I scope out a pen test, if you could ask my girlfriend, you scope out, I scope out a pen test, and let's say I'm going to spend 75 hours on it, I will actually almost spend double the time if I find something, oh, I might be able to exploit it this way, but I have to exploit these three things first before I can get to here. I'll actually spend the extra time on my own time, not getting paid, to do it. You know, because I think, oh, it's really enjoyable, it's fun, but at the same time, I'm giving my customer that extra service. What do you think of the new breed of hackers that we're seeing these days? Oh, amazing. Like, uh, I'm a fan of Ian Beer, like the guys at uh, the Zero Project at, at Project Google. Zero, yeah. yeah, Ian, uh, Tavis, Ormandy, the guy with the recently, like, Cloudfair. There's a lot of brilliant, brilliant guys. You know, Charlie Miller with uh, finding exploits and vehicles and that sort of thing. There's so much great talent out there. You go to Black, you go to Blackhead and you go, oh, my God, like, I know not, I know nothing. Right. But everyone has their, you know, their niche area of interest. Right. And you can't know it all. But it's always interesting to go to presentations. What is kind of disappointing to me these days is I was in a day where people would find bugs and they wouldn't tell the world about them. You'd have them like in your own group. But nowadays, you know, people are doing it for the kudos. Right. Oh, I want to get the free T-shirt from Salesforce so, yeah, <laughs> or whatever. So they're doing friend, free pen testing. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this is crazy because back in my day, this would never happen. We would keep those secret, obviously. And people are doing it for a free T-shirt. It's great for the company. T-shirt costs 20 bucks. Right. Right. And they get to find out about a serious bug. Why do you think that changed where back in your day you wouldn't do that for free, but now they're doing it for T-shirts? What, what changed in the, the hacker community? Uh, uh, I don't know what changed. I guess it's all cred. Back in my day, we didn't care about cred. We just cared about pursuit of knowledge. And now it's all changed where in the community, it's like a lot of egos and credibility is at stake. So people just to get on Yahoo's I found a bug list will spend you know, a week or two trying to work out in, you know, a bug. And the world, it's changed you know, from what it was before. And everything that you see now is reported. So that's good. That's a good thing to get the bug fixed. So back in my day, it was like not reported right away or maybe not at all. And it was shared to a limited circle of people, and nobody really did it for ego. But nowadays, it's all ego-driven. Yeah. Except like the Google people are doing it. You know, they're getting paid for it, and they're helping secure the world, so to speak. So it's not everybody. You can't put everyone in the same bucket. I want to give Lorenzo a chance to talk a bit because he is probably one of the best security reporters in the world. So I know awesome. you have some questions for Kevin. Yeah, speaking of the celebrity culture in the hacking community, 
Do you f- also feel that there's some sort of a fetish for like what my colleague Joseph actually the other day was calling hacking porn, like this sort of like esoteric exploits or bugs, like hacking into the fan of a computer next to another one? You know, that's kind of a cool hack. But yeah, like, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It might but not like, be the practical. Like yeah, like I remember. Uh, it was a guy that runs the conference, Dragon something, came out with, uh, what do they call it, uh, Bad Bios? Bad Bios. Yeah, 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 yeah Bad Bios. Oh, yeah. And it was never proven from what I know, but it was all about doing like this clever stuff. But I did read about clever stuff with, you know, memory exploitation, being the flip bits and that sort of thing. And I just go, wow, that is cool. I'm actually impressed with some of the stuff I see out there. Do I see sometimes a practical exploit, a, a practical exploited? Not always. But do you right. think that there's an obsession for sophistication? You know, even like when we cover stories or wired cover stories, and if like it's not sophisticated, like a lot of readers are like, oh, well, you know, this is not sophisticated. Well, but, like, I think it does affect maybe real to the people, hack, right? But also to the target. Like when Hacking Team was hacked, you know, it, was, it wasn't, you know, super, uh, super clever hack. They did stupid stuff. From what's reported, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, their database server had the same creds this guy had or whatever. And you're going, oh, my God, these guys should know better. So, so in some cases, it's not the coolness of the hack. It's the coolness of the target. Yeah, and I, I feel that, that a lot of people forget that sometimes the easiest way is the most effective one. Even if it's not sophisticated, it just still works. Yeah, I mean, you, you find uh, common mistakes. Like when we're assessing web apps, you know, we find our clients make stupid mistakes. We were testing a medical company. And there was a way that we could just simply write one post statement to change our privilege level. Basically, we could rewrite our own privilege level from a non-privileged user, essentially, and gain admin access over the application. And you're going, wow, that was stupid. But hey, the developers that developed that app probably weren't even educated in SDLC. And that's how it goes. I feel like there's a lot of hysteria right now with the like Russia DNC hack and just among politicians in general and the general public. Yeah about hacking, cybersecurity, et cetera. Yeah, it's huge I mean, now because of uh, Trump. Right. Do you think that that hysteria is warranted? How should we talk about cybersecurity? Well, I think a 12-year-old could have done the hack on Podesta. It was a yeah. spear phishing yeah, attack. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Gmail sends, you know, it's a fake Gmail. Uh, it's a, a fake email that purportedly from Gmail that his account was compromised and reset his password with a hyperlink. That's a 12-year-old attack, man. You know, it's like, oh, these sophisticated Russians have figured out a super secret way of exploiting. It's, it's like, okay, uh, the guy didn't have two-factor authentication. Bad on him. Who knows? I don't know if it's the Russians behind it. That's what the government tells us. I'm not really too trustworthy of the government. Right. You know, I don't really believe them because they lie all the time. So I don't know if it's really the Russians behind the attack or LulzSec2. I don't know. Do you think that hysteria is warranted, though? Like, people say we can't keep ourselves secure. We're waiting for, like, a cyber Pearl Harbor, et cetera. Well, it's true you can't keep yourself secure because with enough time, money, and resources, you can compromise any target. We do it all the time. And every company that we test, we always get in, as long as we have enough time, right, which equates to the client paying a bill. But uh, it's now because of the whole DNC debacle, cybersecurity is now visible to everyone, right? To the non-technical people. So now people are more concerned about self-interest. Could somebody steal my identity? You know, could, how, how could this affect me? Because that's what people care about most. So certainly it's definitely raised awareness. Companies are concerned. When Target was hacked, I got a ton of new clients that wanted us to test their payment systems because they didn't want to be the next Target. 
So it definitely has effect. I know that a lot of your hacks were social engineering, yeah. as are a lot of hacks in general. If you were to socially engineer us, like if you wanted to get into our Gmail or something, what would you do? Well, if I wanted to get like advice, first of all, I probably wouldn't target any of you. I would target somebody over there, you know, sitting at the desk to get on your internal network. And then I'd compromise your machine. I put an implant, a software implant on the machine. I would steal your Chrome safe storage key copy all your cookies over to my machine and then I'd be logged into your Gmail because you already authenticated for me. I wouldn't even need your password. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please no one do that. <laughs> right, because in your keychain, all your cookies are with Chrome and encrypted Windows, Mac, it doesn't matter. But the key is easily accessible if I can get on your machine. Right. A lot of people come in and out of our office and, all day. <laughs> and don't forget, there's a lot of companies that, you know, they centrally manage employee Macs. If you're using like JamF Nation, which is Casper and stuff like that, then if I can get to that management control system, now I have sudo rights on your Mac, essentially, and it's game over. Like I just did a pen test, and that was that type of environment. And what the target was, was this company uses LastPass for enterprise. And the key was to steal a LastPass vault. So one of my team members actually was able to modify Chrome to basically imagine a page sitting kind of in the background. It keeps monitoring if they're going into LastPass. When it does, it just pops their vault and basically sends it up to one of our servers. In this particular case, what was disappointing is the employees that we attacked that were successful in putting the implant logged onto their personal LastPass suddenly got their personal vaults. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today sucked but you know so basically the bottom line is when an attacker gets on your machine and gets admin rights in windows or you know root on your os xbox it's game over how much of your work is physical versus digital remote stuff it's it's funny i would say physical is the least technical exploitation uh like web app assessments and network assessments i would say is the greater portion and social engineering is in the middle you know, a lot of companies don't bother with social engineering because they already know 30% of their employees will click. You know, I always try to upsell it, right? You know, when a client has us test their infrastructure, I say, hey, you know, you should really have us test your people because that's the number one way in. And I give them examples in the media and they go, oh, no, we're not. Why would we hire you to test our people? Because we could already ourselves get 35% of them to click. We know we could probably get 50. So they don't even, you know, they already know they have a problem. Mm-hmm. So then I focus on the mitigation side. So I'm a partner in a company called Know Before. It's like Wombat Fish Me. And we have simulated phishing tools that we sell access to and training to help companies become better at uh, recognizing you know, phishing attacks, for example. Have you spent a lot of time pondering the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and some of the other laws used to prosecute I spent a hackers? lot of time pondering that when I was in jail. <laughs> yeah. Whomever accesses a federal interest computer. Right, yeah, yeah, I read that. I read it a few times. Now the statute is probably... Now much broader. Now it's ridiculous. Now, yeah, it's catch-all. You know, no, it's basically I sign up under Bill Smith on Facebook. I'm violating their terms of service. Technically, I'm vi- violating the CFAA. So if I have a prosecutor, no, like if you did it, probably it's no big deal. 
If I do it because of my background, there's actually a small risk, but there's a risk that I could be prosecuted for it because you get some young prosecutor, oh, I can get Mitnick again. Uh, you know, I could be on the news on CNN. They'd actually do it. And I mean, the EFF and other people out there uh, are trying to get Congress to narrow the scope of the CFAA. But now with this new administration and this attorney general you know, trying to like, make marijuana illegal now in all the states, it's going to be extremely conservative. So I could see, I think the trend's going to be a lot of the laws are going to get much stricter, much more conservative, and much higher penalties. You know, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that they made an example out of you back in the day. Do you think that that's changed or not? Like in terms of, are they still trying to make the Yeah, but they need a new example. See, what they wanted to be was the Edward Snowden back in those days. They, I remember they wanted to put me through a CIA debriefing and there was an accusation. I broke into some classified materials at CIA, which I never did. Okay. And the government was dying. The DOG, the prosecutors were dying to find somebody who through a computer has access classified information as a spy, so to speak, because now that would be great for them. That would be they could chalk that one up. Well, I was never the guy. I was the guy that was doing it for the fun of it and never touching classified or government material. So I think they were disappointed. Now they have bigger fish to fry. So they're not interested in me anymore. Now it's people like Edward Snowden, even though I don't really consider him a hacker. Right. Right. Because he had admin access to the data. But you never know. Maybe he did do some hacking where he only had limited access because don't forget they have mandatory access controls. Right. And maybe, you know, the guy's knowledgeable about hacking. I think even has taught security somewhere. But uh, now the government has much bigger fish to fry and much more serious type of offenses where people are leveraging hacking tradecraft for, you know, crimes, spying, hacktivism, and that sort of thing. If you were to reform the CFAA, what do you think would be reasonable? Whoever accesses a federal interest computer without authorization is free and clear. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> Legalize it! <Yeah. laughs> Legalize marijuana! Yeah. Legalize hacking! The thrill's <laughs> gone, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, like... Um, that's a broad statute, meaning it covers lots of things, hacking into classified materials. One central theme that came up in my case is it was the value of the property. So essentially what the government tried to do by making me the example is they had all the cell phone companies I hacked into and basically just looked at the code. They basically were trying to get the value of the harm really high so they could put me in prison a much longer time. So they came up with these wild theories that just me looking at the source code the company lost their R&D investment in the development of the code. So companies like Motorola and Nokia said the damages were over $80 million, which is ridiculous. I just looked at it. I didn't send it to anybody. Right. I didn't use it. I simply, you know, it's almost like stealing a can of Coke at 7-Eleven. Oh, you stole the formula to Coca-Cola. You can analyze that Coke, right? So I think that the not only with the CFAA, but with the elements of the statute, you know, saying you have to access you know, a federal interest computer and obtain something of value of $5,000 or more, the way to get to that $5,000 mark is super, super easy. It's not realistic, right? So if I were to modify the requirements of the CFAA, I'd make it much more realistic on the harm because a prosecutor comes up with all these wild theories. In the Craig Niedorf case, E911, this is when you couldn't get Ma Bell manuals back in those days. Now they're, you probably get them on the internet. He got some E911 document that was essentially not public, but not secret. And in the damages assessment to try to convict him of a federal offense, because the amount of damages had to be much higher than today, they were saying, well, 
Someone wrote that document on a computer. We have to get that in the valuation. Oh, that computer accessed a server, and that server had the word processing software, and that server is worth like $50,000. So that was part of the damage. So they used all these crazy theories to get the damage up to like you know, hundred grand, which was ridiculous. Right. right? Yeah, I mean, so, I think in like yeah. the Matthew Keys case, there was like the damages on that were something absurd for... Yeah, like, so what, what, unfortunately, federal prosecutors could exaggerate the damage and the harm to set an example or to send someone to prison for a long time. And that's one issue. The other issue that people don't know is under federal law, if you're charged with like 10 counts of fraud and you are convicted of what? Let's say you have wire fraud. Back in my day, it was maximum penalty of five years per count. So you got 10, so you're facing 50 years. Not under the federal sentencing guidelines, I'm talking statutorily. So basically under federal law, what a lot of people don't know is if they convict you of one of the 10, you're facing five years, right? Uh, Max statutorily. But what they could do is they have a theory called relevant conduct. And so if they could bring in other acts of criminality and they don't have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, they only have to convince a judge more likely than not, you did all this other stuff too, when you get your sentence, you get sentenced on the stuff they think you also did that you weren't convicted of. And people don't know this. So in the federal system, to actually beat a case, you have to beat all the counts. That's why they have such a high number of federal defendants that plead guilty, because nobody's willing to roll the dice that you're going to beat everything. Right. And if you lose one, you get sentenced as if you did it all. And that's what people don't know that aren't involved in the system. So that really... You know, when you have your lawyer coming in, oh, yes, well, if you go to trial, we actually, we, I don't think they could convict you of the one count. They want to charge you with 20 counts. And um, if they convict you of the one, you're going to be sentenced that you did all 20. So do you want to plead guilty and accept the four years in prison? Or do you want to roll the dice? We'll go to trial, but you're facing 500. Right. Every federal defendant is, oh, my God, I'll take the four even if I didn't do it. I didn't know that. That's Most people know. don't. Yeah. So you've made hacking and security your life. Are you passionate about anything else adjacent? I feel like a lot of hackers are into like open source or freedom of information, things like that. You- I'm not really like, a, you know, uh, like I don't think, oh, you know, everything should be hacked. So information is free. I'm really focused in, when it comes to computer security more in the offensive. I like the puzzle solving. I like figuring a way around security things. You know, that's kind of my main focus when it comes to technology is really focused in that specific niche of information security. As far as other interests outside of information security, not that much. It's be a honest good one, with though. you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you watched Mr. Robot or Black Hat or any Mr. Robot? Never heard of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Do you think that's actually a, a great show? Right. Yeah, it is yeah. great. We've, um, we've done quite a few interviews with writers on there and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. So you probably need to read Core Adonis. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Core, Core was right? on yeah. the show. No. Once. And what I like about that show is they try to get it right. Right. <laughs> they, they don't get it perfect. Like when they were doing a Bluetooth hack on a prison, he was using like HC, HCI scan, which is a tool we use to look for BD adders. So he did it half right, but taking it to the end was not realistic. But they go to the extra steps of actually using realistic hacks. I think they used one that Sammy Kamkar recently developed called a MagSpoof. Right. And uh, I had the opportunity to actually meet Sam, who's the uh, showrunner. I've met Christian Slater. I've met Ron. We met them at uh, South by really great people, you know, and um, I really like the show. It's uh, I think the most realistic hacking show I've ever seen. 
What is uh, your favorite misconstrued hack in like pop culture? Like, I don't know if that. I guess watching sense, but, like what's the most absurd? What's yeah. the most absurd thing? Like you've watching seen these movies that these yeah. writers conjure up in their own head. First of all, oh, a hacker has to be eating pizza with <laughs> nine thousand cans of Code Red, you know, in the bedroom. Right? Uh, they can't interact with anybody because they're socially withdrawn. If that was true, I couldn't do social engineering, especially physically. Right? It's just this whole movie image, you know, because the public accepts the images that writers that have no idea who hackers are write the scripts. Right. right. But is, that might change with Mr. Robot. Yeah. This is like a topic of people talk about cybersecurity now in their everyday life. Like my mom, like she's heard of like the Mirai botnet attack and stuff like that. Oh, that's Was cool. it like that, you know, in the 90s? No, but I, I remember my mom, I bought her a Windows computer to do because she loved playing Scrabble. So she would call me frantic every week because her computer doesn't work. And it turned out it would be malware. And then I would find out that she download, you know, clicked on something, downloaded something, and I'd try, Mom, you can't do this. Do not click on anything. You know, she'd have Skype. You should get the Skype you know, messages with links and all this stuff. And don't do it, don't do it. And literally for a year, she would desperately call me no matter where I am in the world. I need you to fix my computer. I can't play Scrabble. You know, come fix it now, right? And calm down, calm down. And so what I ended up doing, because it was such a hassle, is I went out to the local Apple store, bought her an iMac, right? Never happened again. I mean, but I'd go over there and see her desktop and EML files, EXE files. She wouldn't listen to what not to download. You know, it was like a ton of uh, malware on the desktop, but it didn't run on OS X. And so that was my solve. Just And I, uh, I put in the, obviously, instead of you could only download uh, apps from Mac Store and identify developers, I put it to Mac Store only, you know, and just installed like some uh, Kaspersky and just never got a call again, ever. <laughs> the only call was where the AV subscription expired to come, you know, to, you know, put in my credit card number to fix it. But it was funny because that was a solve. So moving from Windows to OS X in that case. I think a lot of people have done that, just like, not dealing with this anymore. But you should become a, complacent that OS X is not vulnerable. Oh, of because, course not, yeah. And a lot of people, you know, to me, I think a free BSD is more vulnerable than Windows, except it's not such a high-value target, because you could actually really configure Windows to make it really secure. And I just think that OS X isn't really targeted because there's not a lot of exploits out there for it. You know, if you're doing a social engineering attack on an OS X user, you're limited to a macros, and tricking them into installing a DMG, or if they're on the same wireless network, injecting a fake update into their you know, into the browser. This might be a better question for like a web dev, but it's something I've been wondering a lot. And you're in the both you know Windows and Mac ecosystems all the time. Why is OS X so bad at handling Chrome tabs? Like I That's feel something like the, I couldn't answer. Okay. Right? All right, because I'm right. not doing dev. No, okay, right, yeah. especially on my web apps. You know, I manage a team, so. In a lot of cases, I'm not even doing the web app assessments. You know, my team is doing it. And what I do is I just pick the best team. This is a question I've been searching the answer for for like six months. That's a Twitter question. It is. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I have one quick question uh, to the idea of PCs and personal devices. I see you have an iPhone. Is that a security concern or do you just like iMessage or something? Well, not iMessage because, you know, that's not really, you know, that, does, that uses it. Or was there like yeah. an Apple feature that you liked? Well, no, I, I, prefer, like- I like Apple because of the aesthetics. Okay, number one, iOS, in my opinion, is more secure than Android. Why? Because how much does it cost for an iOS exploit? 1.5 million, right? How much does it cost for an Android zero day? 200,000. So I'd rather that the adversary have to spend a lot more money to exploit my device. 
which is absolutely possible. If this one has 1.5 million, they could own it, as we all know. And I just prefer it. I run Windows on here in virtual machines. So I have a ton of virtual machines. The only thing I don't like is I want 10 terabytes of storage. I want 64 gigabytes of RAM on this because when you're running virtual machines, it you know eats up, at least eats up memory. How paranoid are you in your day-to-day life? And how paranoid is too paranoid, do you think? Well, I, I think I have a, a very healthy skepticism. I'm really careful, even to the point, like every time a new MacBook comes out, like I have one in my hotel room right now. I haven't loaded it, the newest one. And that's because I reinstall everything from scratch. So basically, I never know if I'm exploited, right? Because I do it all the time and I exploit security experts as part of a pen test. And they never know. So I could never know. I could be the victim. So what I do is I reload my Mac from scratch at least every six months to a year. So that way, if I'm compromised, because, you know, I could be compromised. It's not my fault that there are bugs in the OS. I might be out at, uh, you know, at a meeting and leaving my machine in a hotel. They came out with a PCI leech attack to extract keys from OS X. Do you know if you're a PCI yeah, leech? Yeah, I think we covered that, yeah. Yeah, really cool. Really cool attack. And so there, it doesn't matter if my drive's encrypted. They could get the keys. So I could leave this in a hotel room. Uh, that's why a lot of times, like when I was, um, where was I recently? I was at RSA. And every time I left the room at RSA, I don't know if you noticed, I actually powered off my map. I didn't leave it on, so I had no keys to extract out of memory. I get more lax, like maybe when I'm here in New York, because I'm not here at a hacker con or a security con, so I could become more relaxed. But I do know I could always be compromised, and I think it's something healthy to realize. I, I don't think your ego should be so high that you think you're completely immune from being hacked, because that's when you'll be compromised. Have you ever knowingly been owned? I'm sorry? Have you ever been hacked? Well, my website has in the uh, early days. It was like some web hosting provider for 50 bucks a month. I never even had an account on there. I think they gave my webmaster an FTP account. And I got owned a couple times. And then I just moved to Firehost, which is now Armor. And they've done a good job. So that's the website. Didn't have any confidential data. The only data it had was what's on there publicly. And that was even prior to my current website. But in my book, I tell an interesting story I never told anybody. Around 2008, I was in Bogota, Colombia. I uh, asked my uh, former girlfriend at the time, because she was in Vegas, I said, hey, can you come over? And I need to switch the hard drive in my Mac before I go to Colombia. I I forgot what the reason it was, but maybe it was a terabyte. I don't recall. So she came over because she's a hardware person. At the time, the drive in that particular version of the MacBook wasn't easily accessible. You actually had to take the whole damn thing apart. So she does it, and she puts a new drive in there. I format OS X or whatever. I go off to Columbia. I do my gig. Then my girlfriend and I go out the time we go out to dinner. I come back. I go to the hotel. I put in my key, and it's yellow light. Well, that's weird, yellow light. Because I know yellow light in the May States and their locks, it means locked from the inside. And then I, uh, we walk downstairs to the lobby, go get a new key, come back up, yellow Wait, and then go back down. There's nothing I could do. I could only go back to... My mistake was not leaving my girlfriend at the door all the time. should never let her leave the door. I know this for now future. So I go back. Fourth time, I said, okay, you're coming with me, security. So security guy comes up with me. His key opens the door, opens the door. Everything's cool. Everything is, you know, oh, it was just paranoia on my part. I'm being too paranoid. So eventually, I'm back in Las Vegas, and a few weeks later... And I asked Darcy to come over and switch out the hard drive again. I, I think there was some issue I was having with that drive. 
So she's opening up the laptop on my kitchen counter and she goes, why were you in your laptop? I go, what are you talking about? She goes, you put the screws too tight on the hard drive. When I put your hard drive in, I always put them in loose. And then, boom, it all hit. Then everything came together in my mind. I go, oh, Holy shit. Yeah. You know, somebody was in that room probably taking my drive out, which yeah. is a, yeah, because I had a BIOS password or EFI password at the time. So basically, you couldn't just put it in target mode to clone it. You'd actually have to remove the drive. So now I suspect or highly suspect that a government agency, I don't know if it was the DAS from Columbia or the Americans, I don't think it was a hacker, was actually in the hotel room cloning my hard drive. Fortunately, I was using PGP whole disk. But that doesn't matter because Jonah Rakowski, if you know who that is, had developed a very cool attack years ago called Evil Made. So basically, with a USB stick on a machine that's booted, you basically are changing the bootloader to store the key, come back, grab the credential, right? So... I don't know if they ever decrypted the drive, but I highly suspect they cloned it. There have been a lot of reports that Customs and Border Patrol are demanding people unlock their devices oh, yes. to enter. And that's covered in my and book. It, it's covered in your book. Okay. Yeah. Can so we still talk about it, though? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, co- I cover yeah. this in Art of Invisibility because I go across the border all the time, and I'm a private person. I'm, I do not want the government to have any access to my data, not because I'm you know, doing anything criminal, but because it's my personal data, I have my clients' data on my computers. And so I talk a lot about how to protect yourself against that situation. And if you're interested, I have a story where I was recently going to Canada and I'll just tell it. So I was- (laughs) We are interested for the record, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I had to go to Toronto to do a speaking engagement and they had really bad weather in Toronto. So I flew to Chicago and decided I was just going to get Black Line, that's like a limo service, to drive me from Chicago over to Toronto. And I could just work with my my Y and my computer. The guy that was driving the limo was a Lebanese guy. And I go, oh, do you have a passport to get into Canada? Are you allowed in Canada? Because he's driving me into Toronto. Oh, I have a green card. I can get in. I go, okay, cool. So we get to the border. And it was like something out of CSI. Is they take the car to secondary inspection. Vroom. All these agents go on it. Immediately, they're taking this guy's cell phone off. What's your passcode, sir? Put it in. They're looking at where this guy has been before, where he's going. And I know, ooh, they're going to ask me for my passcode, I'm sure, right? I go, I got to think how to get out of this because I'm not going to give it to them. So what's going to happen is they're going to send me back across the border of the U.S. My client is going to be really pissed, right, because I'm not going to show up. And um, so I was thinking, oh, what can I do? So I used a little bit of social engineering. I had my luggage locked and I had the key in my wallet. So the ladies inspecting this guy's phone, when I felt the timing was right before they asked me anything, I go, hey, you're not going to search my luggage. Uh, immediately, they disinterested in the phone, right? They go, what do you mean? I said, my luggage, you can't search it. We're customs. You, 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 if we want to search your luggage, we have the right to inspect everything. I said, well, you can't get into it. And, and then they, boom, they're up on me and they go, why can't we get into it? You don't have the key. And they go, do you have the key? I go, yeah, it's in my wallet. And I give them the key, man. The whole, you know, they're just, they're just focused on going through my clothes. Completely forgot about the electronics. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that actually worked because by that time, they're asking me to go into some office. So, you know, like, why are you here? You know, uh, do you have a letter of invitation? So I, I have my phone with me by that time. So they're not asking me anything about it. But I guarantee you, if I let it keep going, uh, they would definitely say, hey, what's your passcode? And in Canada... 
from what I understand, there was a case where somebody recently, a Canadian, went into the country, customs there demanded the passcode, and he refused to give it, and he was actually charged with the crime because in Canada they have different laws, right? In the United States, it's undecided. So there's right now a guy sitting in, in a federal prison who's allegedly a child pornographer that's refusing to give up his, uh, his uh, key to unlock his uh, drive. And so he's held in contempt of court. I'm really concerned about the case. Now, they picked a perfect case because nobody, everybody hates a child pornographer. You know, everyone wants him to go to prison no matter what, if he's any involvement in that. Right. So they picked this guy because now what's going to happen set a precedent that you have to give your passcode. Well, and that's what's San scary. Bernardino. It's like this is yeah. everyone wants them to be able to get into that specific phone. Right. That's not- so they're picking the right cases, terrorism case, child pornography case, putting those people in jail, give us the code, and then it gets litigated. And then because how it is, is they rule against these guys because of what they're, they're accused of. And then it sets a bad precedent for people like us. So hopefully, you know, there might be a time when you go across the United States border inside and they say, open up your phone and you have to do it. Then the other countermeasures don't have anything on that device. Use a travel device. Yeah. So you don't just carry the data. Right. And uh, uh, right now, as far as I know, you could refuse to give U.S. Customs or ICE the key. The worst thing they could do if you're a U.S. citizen is take your equipment. So what I have is I actually have... You know, another all my computers are actually have exact copies of them sitting where somebody can FedEx it to me at any time. So I don't care if they take my computer. Go ahead. You know, uh, here's my address when you're done with it. You know, good. Have fun. You know, but that's not everybody, right? Most people can't be inconvenienced like that. So unfortunately, they'll be persuaded to give up their codes. And I think it's a huge violation of privacy. Unless you're really suspected of wrongdoing, they shouldn't be able to search your computer. Yeah, I mean, that to me is absurd. But it's the law. It's horrifying. And what's even more concerning, this could only happen at the border, right? No. It's 100 miles. miles, 100 miles. So literally, like, we're in Laredo, Texas, I don't know, like a few weeks ago, and we're driving for like an hour and a half, and then we hit an inspection point. They could search your phone. They could search your computer here. We're still within the border range. And it's really uncomfortable. This was an Obama-era decision right to to make it 100 miles i don't know who it was but whoever it was i think made a a grave error yeah we didn't talk about the encryption debate at all and i feel like it's been discussed a lot obviously for decades but where do you think this latest encryption debate is going well i'm pro-encryption i believe people should have the right to protect their privacy shouldn't be forced to give up their keys should use end-to-end encryption that's what i preach in the book end-to-end encryption with pfs Perfect forward secrecy. Now, with this new administration coming in, there's a lot of concern on my part. Are they going to draft new legislation and have Congress pass laws that require us to give up our keys? And I guarantee you somebody like Donald Trump would want that. He wouldn't want to violate his own privacy, but I don't think the guy would have any qualms about being able to get visibility into people's devices. And case in point, didn't he go on the air on national television when Apple refused to help the FBI, and say that everyone should boycott Apple. So we already know what this guy's thought process is. So it's really concerning. So the only way our rights will be protected is through how our government works in the United States, balance of power, legislative branch, judicial branch, executive branch. So hopefully... The other branches will keep this guy in they check. They haven't done a great job so far. <laughs> no, because they're all, another podcast. unfortunately, they're all the same side. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. You know. We were talking about 
how you were obsessed with magic as a child. Yes. How, how magic was kind of your gateway into hacking. And then in the 90s, when you were, you know, creating false identities, you were disappearing in a way in this intangible kind of space. And magic is all about theatrics and performance. So I guess my question... Misdirection and deception. Yeah, precisely. So, like, do you feel like hacking is a sort of performance? Do you feel like you're performing Absolutely. magic? Absolutely. Well, I do speaking engagements around the world, and all my keynotes are all performances. I'm showing real hacks, so it's not it's not magic to us. But it's magic to the audience. And it's almost like I'm a magician, uh, you know, showing exploits of Ghost Past, essentially. Yeah. That's her line. I stole it. But anyway, uh, you know, because these are exploits that as a security expert, you've, you heard and seen before bad USB and PDF attacks and, you know, certain types of social engineering macro attacks and all this. But to the average layperson on the street, it's magic. So I get to perform it. I get to be the David Copperfield of hacking when I do my keynotes. So it's really cool. Because I still love magic. A lot of my friends are magicians, right? And uh, I want to start, I want to hire a magic consultant, actually, to create some real magic tricks to probably integrate into the keynote to make it more of a magic performance as well. Right. So you hit, the, you hit it right on the head. Well, yeah, thank you so much for All coming right. by. The book is The Art of Invisibility by Kevin Mitnick. Uh, you can buy it at bookstores everywhere, probably, yes? Yeah, bookstores, yeah. Amazon, you yeah. know, right? I... I don't actually sell the book myself. It's the publisher. You don't carry it around with you. <laughs> yeah, I don't carry. I don't carry it. Uh, you know, stop me on uh, Fifth Avenue later. I'm yeah. the guy carrying the suitcase of books. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I accept Square. Yeah. You know, right? yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. So I'm sure it's at like all the typical places, Barnes and Noble, and uh, yeah. especially the, the bookstore. Yeah, bookstore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, I'm Jason Kebler. We had Lorenzo Franceschi, Bikirai, Nicholas DeLeon, and Charu Sinha. And this was Kevin Mitnick. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for having yeah. me on your show. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Radio Motherboard is produced by Tim Barnes. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find us on iTunes, all podcast apps. Uh, please rate us. And yeah, we'll be back next week. Cool. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.